I'm going to get that sucker. In honor of the title of Ghost Rider 2 Spirit of Vengeance, what's your favorite on-screen moment of sweet, sweet revenge? I am Matt Patches, and I am going to go with uh, the moment when Ineo Mentoya finally catches up with the six-fingered man and doesn't wait for him to prepare to die. He has only one request. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven. I'm going to go with Violet, Violet Beauregard from Willy Wonka, because that little fucker deserved to get juiced. And in the Tim Burton version, the actress that played her looked like my girlfriend at the time, and that girlfriend dumped me. You have issues. Yeah, yeah. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with get away from her, you bitch, because when you kill Bill Paxton and then try to kill Newt, Ripley is going to make you pay. Game over, man. I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm the school ties count, because I think school ties should count. But if not, I'm going to go with Nelson Pereira dos Santos, how tasty was my little Frenchman, which is not such a moment devoted to revenge, but really an entire (laughs) film. A film is a moment. That's the important part. And that moment is Recent developments regarding Operation Kino. It's a podcast. Hello, welcome to this week's Operation Kino. This is our second quarter quell. It is our 50th episode. It is, it's really wonderful. What's crazy is that we've been podcasting for well over a year, but we didn't start counting numbers until a while. So I thought we would take more still weeks not... off. I mean, when we started, I'm like, <laughs> we are all lazy and not good at things. I'm surprised at ourselves. I know. I, I'm, I'm impressed with us. Not just Less surprised. lazy, still not good at things. But, you know, one out of two ain't bad. Well, this week, uh, as with our last quarter quell, we are ditching the usual format. Each of us has brought in a film that is important to us, and this time the theme is movies that got us into movies in the first place. Yay, Facebook poll. Yay, Facebook poll. Thank you for voting if you voted. Um, And everyone's kind of picked their own definition of this. It doesn't have to be the first movie you loved. It doesn't have to be your favorite movie. It just is something that kind of made you look at movies and say, I would like to uh, do more things with movies, whether write about them, make make them, whatever. So everyone's going to have a film. Everyone's going to have a segment dedicated to their film. We're going to end with a a dessert with your lightning round answers as usual. But otherwise, we're just going to kick things off with the first uh, quell submission. What do we call these? What do we call the little segment? I imagine tribute the first tribute is Dave Excellent. I am bringing Godzilla or Gojira to the table. Although we could, yeah. <laughs> Which I think you have to call it Gojira if you're really not going to. Yeah. Well, see, here's and... the thing: is I'm going to start off with this little story, which is I got into Godzilla. I'm sort of a completist geek, where if I find something that I latch onto, I want to start at the beginning and watch all of it until there is any more, just so I could, you know, do it 
And that's uh, how I am with television series and comic books. And uh, really early on, that's how I was with Godzilla. So I think the first one I saw was like part of uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. But then, how old were you? Do you think? Let's see. One. No, no. I wasn't. (laughs) I'm gonna say six or seven. Oh wow! So you're young. I'm really young at this point. Like I was probably really into the idea of a giant fighting robot and a giant dinosaur. Like who wouldn't be at that age? Who wouldn't be? And so I, uh, me and my friend Julian um, from Colorado would uh, sit down and marathon Godzilla movies from our local blockbuster. So I'm almost positive I saw King of the Monsters first. Um, around the age of 12, when we decided to go through, once we got to the end and start over from the beginning, we did actually access Gojira thanks to Video Stop in Boulder, Colorado, which is still around and thank God has such a fantastic collection. Um, but by then we were actually, I'm not going to say old enough to really understand that it was about the trauma of Hiroshima, but, uh, we were old enough to understand the concept that this movie was sort of a reaction to that. And so, uh, I guess that's why I could functionally talk about both, but I think really the better film is in Gojira, but I think that the Americanizing of it and the process of that, um, was sort of done more completely than uh, other Godzilla films. They actually refilmed scenes with Raymond Burr, faux interacting with stand-ins, and um, sort of tried to massage some cultural differences, like the arranged marriage between the female lead and the scientist, um, out a little bit. So, you know, children could understand it. They basically made it a kid's movie about a giant dinosaur monster, which was a great <laughs> way to get me into Not it. Not a bad idea, yeah. And I would argue that that was the movie that actually got me into movies because not only is it a giant dinosaur monster, but it was the first uh, man in suit sort of giant monster I'd ever seen. Like up until that time in movie history, it was either some sort of trick photography or stop motion. So you had the monsters that were interacting with either props that were slightly scaled down or acting against nothing and then being laid over on top. So the Toho method, which it's known thanks to Godzilla, they're the company that ended up making the whole run of Godzilla films, um, is a guy in a suit who's uh, destroying um, buildings. And it's really interesting because it puts the focus on uh, sort of very detailed model destruction. And you could put so much detail in a model in a miniature, even at this day in cinema that we're talking about, the late 40s, early 50s, um, that you could um, make some really cool-looking destruction shots. And Godzilla, or Gojira the movie, is more about the destruction the monster causes than the monster itself. It's uh, you know a country that is still aching from being devastated in World War II, uh, suddenly is attacked by something that is both a consequence and something similar to that same nuclear threat. And... Uh, the Gojira version, they actually talk about not wanting to tell the world that Godzilla exists because it might cause unrest and already the world's like on edge. And so you kind of get the idea of this Japan that's freaked out and Mother Nature gets pissed at mankind and decides to punish Japan. And they really use it as a filmmaking way to sort of let people vent their emotions about uh, World War Two. And like, there's a lot of horrible... Um, like they they get Godzilla is radioactive um, in this one more so than any other appearance of Godzilla. So some of his victims actually have radiation poisoning after his second attack, and it's um just really 
real and devastating, whereas Godzilla King of the Monsters kind of lets Raymond Burr monologue over it, so it looks more like a 60-minute special because we caused all that, and, you know, we don't want to face that right down at, at the but moment. But I feel like the movie still has kind of Hollywood... I, I, I see parallels to today's Hollywood movies, or when I was rewatching it, you know, there's that scene where they're running through the field and they're hearing the stomping sounds. Like, from a technical filmmaking standpoint, it still seems to parallel... Hollywood movies in a way that it also well, it seemed to much... set up it seemed to set up to me the the traditional disaster movie concept that we're familiar with where yeah. you kind of meet the characters it has the love triangle like that scene straight out of, of well Jurassic Park is straight out of Goji yeah. <laughs> yeah I was just getting let me, to let me flip right here I yeah. mean they were uh, very much very much establishing a certain template uh and what's interesting is that Godzilla's flaws as I see them uh which sort of boils down to the the personal story that's sort of shoehorned in there the love triangle at the center of the film, which is very underdeveloped, uh, is, uh, you know, oftentimes that sort of plot is, is what plagues contemporary disaster films. I agree. Uh, it's the same, you know, that the that the sort of uh, the, the chaos of them and even sometimes the message of the, the contemporary disaster films are effective and, and resonant, but it's the characters who fall flat. But, the, although anyway. I actually, I had a lot of fondness. I had never seen Godzilla before uh, this weekend when I watched it for this. And I, I had a lot of fondness for the scientist character. I thought he was far more interesting than I was expecting him to be. Well, like his, his moral dilemma over sharing this invention, like realizing what it would be well, used he's for. What, and how he's that, what the Japanese he's, he's witch also, Oppenheimer had done, which is like destroy yeah. the beast and then destroy yourself. Don't let it live on. <laughs> Yeah, and, and not, like the, not for nothing, but he's played by Takashi Shimura, who may be the greatest actor in the history of this medium. Yeah, so, he's, I mean, he's it's, it's, really he good. He's going to take a, an underwritten part like that that's really just sort of uh, spits, uh, you know, pedagogic you know, niceties and, 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 and plays the sort of Oppenheimer role, as you said, yeah. um, and, and turn it into something that is, you know, somewhat unforgettable and, and fill those speeches, which are scientifically i'd say laughable given sort of the ignorance of the people to whom he's speaking but uh and fill them with like a real verve and and uh and strength i mean it's takashi shimura i mean it was two years removed from uh ikiru and that was the same year 1954 that he starred as kaibe in seven samurai so dude was on top of his game at the time he was having a good year but he never I won did, an I... oscar david that's true. <laughs> I never um, even I... won an honorary Oscar, which is fucked well, up. Well, interesting Oscar Godzilla tidbit. Uh, the screenwriter of the King's Speech used to uh, rewrite the dialogue for American dubs for the Godzilla movies, I think after the fourth one, all the way through the wow. original run. No wonder David Seidler. Godzilla stuttered his way through that series. <laughs> <laughs> he I actually, say, but he I, said, I have, a question, <laughs> I have a question for you guys who know about uh, sound design and uh, technology at this time. The sound of Godzilla blew me away. Like, I, yes. How, like, I mean, they had to have been, this had to have been the first time that they did that with the, that kind of squealing dinosaur kind of noise. I was just amazed that it was so advanced and so terrifying when there hadn't really been that kind of monster on screen at all before. I am. I think it's one of the more iconic pieces of sound design ever. I mean, up there from, like, mm. you know, the blasters from Star Wars, I think, are also kind of iconic, or the lightsaber sound. But, uh, like, Godzilla, I mean, Godzilla. the Godzilla <laughs> sound is the one thing the 1998 Godzilla managed to get right. <laughs> Can an icon be... Purely aural. It can yeah. be iconic. Think about uh, the. It's like icon- I'd say it's more accurate to say it's iconish. Iconish. <laughs> well, I also wanted to talk that like this. The the reason this influenced me, like, got me into movies, is not only is it fun, but it's. Uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff that got me into movies early is stuff that you could sort of see how it's done. I mean, it's 
it, it's it's someone who eventually wanted to create movies and was creating videos at the time he was watching Godzilla. It's like it's kind of fun to go out and stop motion and fight your you know guys or put your brother way way in the background of the street and your Godzilla really close to the screen and yeah he's blurry but you kind of make him stomp on your brother and you could sort of see that and then like water bubbling and uh, crossfades to make like the skull disappear and but then it was also really sort of visceral and fun and then um, as the Godzilla character evolves somewhat less fun but you know or you know, somewhat less visceral and somewhat too much fun but it was. So do you yeah, think? I mean, do you think oh, some sorry, of that? I, I was just to ask Dave personally. Do you think some of that impulse that first got you into Godzilla continues in what you do with film now? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I lucked out in that I latched on to a monster movie that had a greater theme behind it. Um, you know, I could have like loved them and been a weirdo <laughs> for the rest of my life. So it kind of lucked out in the sense that you know Godzilla is, stays interesting to me still as an evolving character that like you always make he's always he's one of those things that can be whatever you want it to be like vampires or like zombies it's like when you need godzilla to represent nuclear terror he could do that when you need him to be a defender of japan he could do that when he needs to be a father he could do that when he needs to be common relief he could do Uh, that one thing he was less effective in those later roles that's true uh than he was as you know a a more a message more implicitly i mean you he yeah. he operates fine in those worlds, whether or not those movies were good. And it's weird because the only thing you can't make Godzilla is an animal, and that's the 1998's flaw, because he is a monster. He's a creature that we imbue with theme and atmosphere and story to make him do what we want. It's not like you know a lion loose in New York and laying True. laying cubs in Madison Square Garden is somewhat interesting to. Anyone. God, that is what happened, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in, in fake, like very, like inappropriately fake Madison Square Garden for some of us, you know, who find that place to be more of a cathedral than anything else. It was offensive. <laughs> um, but I, I think what you're saying is, is absolutely correct. That Godzilla always, fun- as all of these monsters do, always functions best as a reflection of ourselves rather than something, you know, purely external. Um, but I think you know, I, I, uh, this just came out on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray, and so I just had the opportunity to really you know, pour over it and investigate it. And uh, it just, I, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Hiroshima a year, about a year and a half ago on uh, August 6th and sort of take part in everything that was happening there. And it, what was interesting to me about it is that the, the message of Godzilla, that lingering idea that it needs to sort of, the film and Godzilla and all that, you know, the, the nuclear event they sort of invited upon themselves and everything else needs to be a a lesson and not a precedent. I mean, it can't be, it ha- it has to sort of work as an eternal and never forgotten deterrent and and not be a sort of lingering source of of uh of strife between nations and conflict and tension it has to be something that the world can sort of unite around and and use as a point to sort of move forward and that spirit is very very much alive and well the message that Takashi Shimura's character imparts in that film is very very much still today at the heart of the activities that take place at hiroshima on the anniversary of the bombing um and godzilla really for me is is functions to this day as a potent and accurate uh filmic you know representation of the legacy of the nuclear attacks on japan 
And it's also, I think, most surprising is that beyond all, for all of the franchises that spun away from it and the characters and how much the character has been distilled and made a joke and whatnot, Godzilla is at the end of the day just a legitimately great film. I am. I'm yeah. with you on that. I was surprised I how not bored I was rewatching both versions to do this quarter quill. I really, I'm really bummed that I watched the shitty Netflix streaming version, which is, just doesn't look that good when there's a Criterion out there. I didn't know that. Mm. Oh well. Next, <laughs> next time. Uh, but yeah, do steer clear of the Raymond Burr version. The the, the Japanese original is uh, is the only one that's really worth your time as anything more than a curio. Uh, but yeah, it's like a really. I think that's the that's why I'm so excited for this Criterion version because um, it. I think it will go a long ways to restoring people's understanding that this isn't just uh, like a cultural happening. It's a legitimately great film, and that's why I think it's been so. Enduring. I think you should watch uh, the original Gojira and then watch King of the Monsters and then immediately watch Godzilla 1985 because Raymond Raymond Burr re- reprises his role, and it, it, you need. You need to see that and, badness. And the Roland Emmerich uh, should never be involved at all. Um, uh, Do that as like a tail end before you <laughs> jump into the second series of crazy An Godzilla that happened in the 90s. Okay. Uh, any more thoughts on Godzilla before we move on to the next tribute? <laughs> Godzilla. All right. What you, couldn't t- what you couldn't tell is that my mouth was moving like three beats before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You are our next tribute. You have brought to us the Blues Brothers. And sure. you said you don't know where to begin, but you're going to shoot anyway, so go for it. Yeah, just to set up uh, where I came to this film from. You know, uh, it's it, it's up there in my... It's funny that I picked this movie because I picked Groundhog Day for my... like. It is my favorite film, and that's another like SNL alumni starring in a movie. So there's an obvious connection here. But, um, you know, growing up, I was fairly reserved in my pop culture existence you know not not dissing my parents in any way but i there were just a lot of things i wasn't supposed to watch as a kid i don't remember watching an r-rated movie until i was in past 10 maybe 13 even yeah i i my mom didn't let me watch mtv i think she freaked out when i saw the mask like when <laughs> for the first time like that was scary to her witchcraft witchcraft yeah, is, is it what is it the witchcraft in the mask that freaked your mom out? Oh, I have, I have no. It wasn't like that. It was Jim Carrey's just scary. But Rod um, Patches would always slip you the good stuff. <laughs> Actually, it's funny <laughs> you say that because totally, like my mom uh, was went back to school and like I remember watching The Simpsons then, and I watched so much SNL, like old SNL reruns, Kids in the Hall, that kind of stuff. And I really remember the first like films that weren't Disney movies that I watched were uh, these kind of. SNL type these these guys you know Bill Murray and uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi making these movies back in the seventies and eighties 
And I will never put Animal House or, like, meatballs or anything like that on a pedestal. But Blues Brothers is something that I really treasure because it just – it was it was hilarious. It was this weird um, crossroads of actual filmmaking and, and real gritty cinematography and passion and – but while also being one of these really, really funny movies. It's such a weird movie. You know, it's two and a half hours long, full of music and – this strange offbeat comedy that it was unexpected. And again, like this gritty cinematography and it was just like, what the fuck is this movie? Why, why am I even, how did I even come across this thing? And I was, I talked to my dad a little earlier about how he got into it and he, you know, just saw it when he was in college and, um, saw it in a theater. And I think it stuck with him because here's a relationship between two guys, two brothers who go through everything together. And that really struck a chord with him. And I guess it's this offbeat comedy that continues to stay with him. Like it's the most quotable movie in my family too. And what do you guys quote? I, every, every line in that movie to me is quotable. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but for me, you know, we, we were talking a little earlier before the podcast about how this movie, separate from all these other kind of SNL comedies or even comedy in general, I think, has a certain cinematic quality to it. And it stands out to me as something where I started picking up on um, infusing a movie with the things that you love. And I, I see a lot of love from John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd you know, playing brothers in the first place, but just like writing what they really love and writing people they love into it. Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, all these parts for them. And I don't know if the movie, I, I can also see that the movie is not that great in terms of what we consider a sharp script or a, um, a well-crafted film, you know, is directed by John Landis, who I think is insane. I think he's absolutely insane. Um, I actually, I got to interview him a few weeks ago for Three Amigos, which came out on Blu-ray. And he was going off on how comedies these days aren't artful. And I agree with him. You know, even if I think Blues Brothers is all over the place, I think it is so committed to the way it wants to tell its story. And it's so committed to this Chicago grit. And, you know, when cars are piling up and the cameras in the cars and they're just like, it's just mayhem. It's absolute mayhem. And I think it's off the wall, but it's pure cinema in my eyes. And that, uh, yeah, David scoffs, but I, I, for me, it really struck a chord. And well, I, as someone who also um, has a real place, I, I love music and I love music in movies and how those two can fuse together. And this is an example of just like true um, – again, I, I keep going back to passion because that's what it exudes for me. And I, I don't know. It hits a chord. What were you going to say, David? I mean, I wasn't scoffing uh, as if, you know, Blues Brothers couldn't qualify as, as pure cinema uh, in, in someone's eyes. Uh, and I think that, you know, as we were You'll discussing beforehand, <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, I'm, no, I'm not tall enough to look down at patches about any of this wah stuff. But the, wah uh, John Landis, maybe. But the... Um, John Landis uh, killed some people. We can look down on him all night. Oh, wow. That is true. Wow. Yeah, he wow. went out and murdered them. That's, how, well, that's what happened. Yeah, come on. And he wasn't driving the helicopter. Exactly. You know, wow. Uh, that, okay, I was, so, did not expect that defense of so, Landis. Um, anyway, uh, I, what we were talking about before, I, I saw this film for the first time because of this podcast. I watched it for the first time earlier today. Uh, and so I came at it very differently than Patches did. 
Um, and the first thing that struck me about it, and I loathe the film. Like, I really, I thought it was interminable. Uh, I mean, I thought that the John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd were probably, and this is obviously hyperbole, but let's just go with hyperbole here, the least interesting protagonists in the history of film. I mean, I couldn't, I could not be care less about what they were doing and and belushi is just dead on screen i mean there's no personality that's part or of that's there part of me. the film though. um i mean it's awful uh, but but i mean that's just for my sensibilities whatever um and i understand that if i'm coming at it from different places otherwise sure. that being said that being said um what i was struck by from the opening sequence onwards is precisely as you mentioned as i guess you're paraphrasing landis how artful it is and sometimes i think that that certainly works the film's effect i think that the film has a horrible job of, of balancing tone, I think, as it, it deviates from this, the, the musical review stuff to the naked gun type Zucker uh, visual comedy, which kicks in more at the end, where I think it's actually the film's at its best. Uh, and then this like really flat, unfunny, sort of general genial humor that goes throughout. I don't know. But whatever. The point I'm we trying have, to say, our yeah, sense I'm, of humors to... have absolutely nothing in common, it seems. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and yet evaluation. we laugh together all the time, like old chums. Stuttering <laughs> um, Godzilla. Say where you two that come the, yeah, that the film from the from the get go is unusually artful. You'll never see another SNL film. Uh, they're not made like this anymore. That's remotely this artful and daring, and, and just go for broke. Um, and it, there's there's a real artistry to what Landis is doing, and it doesn't always pay off for me. Um, I, I was intensely disinterested in what was happening and just perked up for the musical numbers. But um, well, I, it's it's rare to see, and I think it's pleasurable on that level. I think it's apt to say that you really detest the film because I know a lot of people who do and I think that polarization that it kind of stirs up in people is important to why it was a, a defining film for me you know I've seen many I saw many films in my youth stumbling into the theater and having no idea what I was about to see just to kind of get away and check things out that really defined what what I thought could be compelling in film and what was a real game-changing movie in my life but i think that the blues brothers for me was something like here here's just someone making a film that is an extension of themselves and what they care about and it's that means it's going to be funny to them and it's going to be paced for them and somehow they achieved doing that in the mainstream and they just did whatever the fuck they wanted because back then they could, and it's kind of amazing. It's a, it's a treasure for that reason too. It's like you could never make the Blues Brothers today, obviously. And they even tried. I mean, you'd have they to even call tried, it the Blues and then Brothers it failed. 2012. Um, what? Oh my god! I... You'd have to call it the Blues Brothers 2012. Well, just for the record, I like Blues Brothers 2000 too, but that's a whole you other podcast. Not. Yes, I do. I, I definitely 100 percent do. Um, wow. <laughs> I certainly haven't seen that one. We so keep stumbling across I, I movies, so Matt. I, I like we'll a lot about of things. Ghost Rider 2 next week. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's way off topic. But I think, I mean, I did, I, I certainly, I think there's a really infectious joy, as Matt was saying, to the uh, to the musical numbers in particular, and you know, with Aretha Franklin and Cab Calloway and all this stuff. I mean, those isolated, and I think this is how, and we'll get to memory in the next film, but I think as to how people remember films and, and fall in love with them and carry them with them. I mean, I think moments are in a film like this, yeah. a lot more important and steer uh, much more than an overall film. And, and like there are sequences from this movie, which I can completely understand why they register with people the way that they do. Um, I just don't necessarily think that they tie together in a particularly satisfying way. But maybe I, I don't want, I don't want my, my uh, connection to this film to seem purely nostalgic, like I'm coming at it from oh, I saw it as a child, and I'll never forget that first moment when I saw the Blues Brothers. I don't remember the first time I saw anything, honestly. Like, I can't remember past 
my 17th birthday. You've seen Ghost Rider uh, 2 five times. I definitely have seen Ghost Rider 2. <laughs> but, um, like, I really don't and – and someone was criticizing – oh, someone was going off of people about – uh, loving Star Wars Episode One because uh, they saw it as kids. Like I really don't feel that connection to my youth and to films like that. I just I still love the Blues Brothers, and I see some. I it really comes from a place of just like being able to make a movie that you want to make and doing it in an artful way, whatever you think artful is. I could see you know I could see that coming out of this because this is also my first Blues Brothers experience and. Uh, Mostly about halfway through when I realized I was like an hour into it and I had no idea what the pacing was or even really where I was going. I just had like a vague idea of these two SNL characters like trampsing through a world I vaguely understood. And I was like, they can do anything for the next hour and I it would not surprise me. The only thing that would surprise me is if they attempted to do nothing. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> pile up more cars. Yeah, I don't even care. There are beer bottles breaking on the gla- like the chicken wire, even after there's like four people and they're all passed out. <laughs> but I stop making that me scene Goes on for thirty minutes, I... <laughs> and it's just it's like I would like the film has such this anarchic sense of doing the impossible. I love I'm like, that. Why are you belaboring? I love that's what I love about it. But I'm like, why are you belaboring this one? half decent visual gag for half an hour with all the stuff of like we're leaving and here's bob's band and like all this shit i was just like next gag maybe that's my my you know modern impatience i was about to say it's not i don't think it's a movie about gags it's just a movie no it's not no i know it's about getting in in tune with kind of the speed of this movie that's creating on its own and uh, patches i know you i know you want to de-emphasize the role of your childhood but i like the idea of seeing this movie when you're really young and you're kind of learning the way that movies work like you learn the rules of narrative i mean we're all seeing disney movies that have this very classical narrative structure and then you see something like this and you're like oh wow it can be something different and david i imagine we might get into this in in your next uh contribution the idea that um, you can be familiar with a certain way that a certain kind of movie is made and then see it done totally Totally differently, and I like the idea of the Blues Brothers being that introduction of that for you because I can't think of what uh, what helped me learn that lesson. For me, along those lines, it was a history of the world part one, which I feel like uh, is, see, I think there's similarities much more there gag to, oriented uh, to Blues but... Brothers. It's just it kind of, well, that's a bit more like a sketch driven yeah. movie than anything, but. Although I think Blues Brothers kind of is, so I don't know. I really enjoyed the exuberance of Blues Brothers and like that that world. I didn't necessarily like how I was spending my time in it, but I enjoyed being there. But I just I, I didn't think it was uh, compelling or amusing. I would have much rather just seen the the music like music videos of the musical performances. But but see, I I still I like the stuff with Carrie Fisher and like all of a sudden she's she blowing really up their, hot in this movie. their apartment yeah, building she with was. a. Uh, a bazooka or like i don't know and then steven spielberg shows up I, it's such a wacky well, movie what's crazy about that is that uh in my limited research for this episode was that the movie opened at number two at the box office to uh empire strikes back <laughs> so carrie frisher was everywhere back then. wow oh, but i like I mean, her character was like pure david zucker to me I mean, like she was, <laughs> you know, that's and, sure, and she's the first totally inclination agree. that that uh, the movie is going to have its cake and eat it too, so to speak. Um, and anyway, I swear, I thought it killed John Candy instantly, which I thought was great. It reminded me of The Shining, even though it preceded The Shining, where it's like it introduces this character you think is going to be pivotal, and he makes this journey to a certain home, and then they just instantly murder him. But then he showed <laughs> up anyway. <laughs> he comes back. It's great world li- building, as you might be the- Roger Ebert might say. 
You might be the first person to compare Blues Brothers and The Shining in that in that deliberate way. I don't know. So so many people discuss the Blues Brothers and watch it ritualistically that I would be surprised if uh, not. You know, every possible comparison has not already been made. <laughs> That's true. Patches, you do you want to wrap up the Blues Brothers? Um, I can either end on an insightful comment or just start singing Minnie the Moocher. I don't know. Insightful wah, comment. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Um, I really have nothing except that I just, I, I don't think they can ever make a movie like this, which makes me treasure it more. Like today, they could never achieve such a big budgeted extension of someone's weird personality. And I'm so glad that it, uh, is an awful film to other people because I think that's a defining part of, uh, cinema and movie watching and everything that we talk about. So I, I love that it's polarizing and, disgusting to look at at times and makes absolutely no sense and i i treasure it forever all right um we are going to wrap up the blues brothers and move on to a music break the first image he told me about was of three children on a road in iceland in 1965 He said that for him, it was the image of happiness, and also that he had tried several times to link it to other images, but it never worked. He wrote me, one day I'll have to put it all alone at the beginning of a film with a long piece of black leader. If they don't see happiness in the picture, at least they'll see the black. So David is up next with his tribute as a movie, I'm going to pronounce it badly, Sans Soleil. Um... I, I was I watched this for the first time for this. Uh, I believe I'm not the only one, right? No, you are not alone. But I was Excellent. familiar with the filmmaker. We and are not alone. <laughs> we are not alone. Uh, but David is the expert, or at least someone very attached to this movie. So David, yeah, take I it think away. I think the your latter description of my relationship with the film is a lot more accurate. I don't know. <laughs> if, I, I think that we're all as humans, sort of equally uh, prepared for for the cinema of Chris Marker. Ooh, um, I think. How very... I think. You know, it's a film that has no, but I mean, it has some parallels to Orson Welles' "F for Fake," and that is a film that would denounce anyone who claims to be an expert on anything. So I think there's a certain degree of humility that one should take into discussing this film. And what's nice about that is that it excuses any incoherence I might bring to the table. Um, and by might, I mean definitely. But I'm talking about Chris Marker's 1983 film, one of my favorite films ever made, which is a movie called Sans Soleil, or as it translates in English, Sunless, which is based off a uh, the title is derived from a musical composition by Ms. Gorski, uh, which runs through the film. And, uh, I mean, Chris Marker, for those of you who aren't aware, is a somewhat elusive multimedia artist. Uh, he made a film, he's most popular for a film called La Jete, which was, is a short film entirely comprised of still images, save for one moment, uh, that was later exploded into by Terry Gilliam into a film called Twelve Monkeys, which I would imagine many more of you are familiar with. Um, and La Jete is, is a really remarkable short film, and it was through La Jete that I discovered... Uh, La Jete was shown to me in film school when I was an undergrad way back in the day, and uh, I, Criterion released La Jete together with this 1983 film Sans Soleil, which is a feature-length, uh, sort of free associative essay film, to, to be really reductive about it, um, that sort of takes this very amorphous shape of a fictional character uh, whose name is um, escaping me right now, uh, <laughs> but uh, is essentially a Sandor Krasna. I'm sorry, is the uh, fictitious 
character that Chris Marker invents. Everyone that Chris Marker references in this film, by the way, uh, who he, he thinks is a character is a creation, an extension of Chris Marker himself. Um, and it's essentially the plot of the movie, so to speak, is this character, Sandor Krasna, uh, writing, is a, is a traveling the world as a photographer, as a, as a cameraman, and he is sending letters to his friend, his, uh, who is reading the letters, portions of the letters, to the audience. And so so the female narrator will often say, he wrote to me, et cetera, as they you know play various images. The, the film is predominantly uh, obsessed with Japan. Um, because that's where Chris Marker happened to be while making his documentary about Akira Kurosawa uh, and some African locations. Then there's a detour to San Francisco where he uh, goes in detail about the film about which Chris Marker is obsessed, which is Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock, which he claims to have seen in theaters 19 times. Um, but, I mean, essentially this is a meditation on a very free associative meditation on memory and time uh, and, and technology and sort of how they all sort of inter intertwine into these big, big questions about who we are and how we relate to the images we make and how the images that we make relate to us and how they sort of, we not only stare at them, but they stare at us in return. Um, and it's it's certainly an unusual film, and I think uh, it can be a, a rough introduction to Chris Marker, uh, although a, a vital and necessary one. But this was a film, I mean, we're talking about the films that, that really inspired our love for cinema, and by the time I saw this, I already knew that movies were going to play a huge role in my life. But what Sansole did for me, we were talking a few weeks ago about Soderbergh and how Soderbergh wanted to, has said that he wants to retire and just sort of re-approach how cinema is made. Man, we, we can't from... shut up about that guy. No, we I can't. know. <laughs> but he wants to talk, you know, he wants to move away from over-the-shoulder shots and shot-reverse shot and all this stuff. And here is a movie, Sansole, that, that explodes what people's idea as to what the cinema is capable of is i mean it tells what i think to be a very moving story but one that is entirely without characters in the traditional sense one that is entirely without a narrative that its story so to speak you know it's not really a plot i think story is the wrong word but it's narrative really only makes sense once you completely abandon any hope of following it lucidly you know from point a to point b uh, and Katie had mentioned when we were talking about this earlier that she sort of would find herself caught up in little bits here and there and say, okay, I know where I am now, and then immediately find herself dislocated. And I think that it's only really once you give yourself over to that idea and relate to the film on a more abstract, intellectual way. And I don't mean intellectual and sort of like smarter, but I mean purely as like a cerebral exercise rather than following sort of uh, any sort of through line logically. Uh, it becomes very emotionally moving. And the last shot of this film... Uh, it, which is very brief, um, coupled with its narration, like is a huge punch to the gut for me every time I see it. But, um, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, Chris Marker, the reason I want to talk about this movie is that like, Chris Marker is obsessed with formative images. He, I mean, this is a story of a man, and this is a quote from the movie, they say this is a story of a man marked by an image from childhood. That's a quote from Lajate. Lajate is about a kid who's obsessed with an image, and he goes back in time to sort of essentially find out what this image is and what it means to him and, and fill in the, the details. Uh, and it, it sort of damns him. But, um, I mean, Chris Marker is obsessed with formative images, and I can't really think of, of any better filmmaker to make the subject of discussion about the films that have shaped our lives and made us interested in film to begin with. Um, and, I mean, like, I, I, I'm really... I could expound upon this film for forever, and I guess I'll have a few minutes to do so, but I would, you know, rather invite the newbies uh, into it um, and see what... See what other people had to say about it before I. Uh, we got we got no further. preamble 
to what this was, which I actually enjoyed now, even though about halfway through it, I was like, I wish someone would have told me what this was. <laughs> because um, David gave a really good description of what it is. And, you know, these letters from a fictional character to another fictional character read by a woman. And uh, but that's not set up at all. You just kind of get pieces where like he wrote to me. And then the thing that I saw that most, and you have to sort of distinguish that the he and the wrote is also the I and we're all together, Eggman. And um, yeah, so really, at really early on in the movie, the narration became secondary to me trying to pick visual clues out of it. And that actually led to, a, I think, a, I guess Dave, David described it as a more intellectual experience where I would get really just involved with the image that I was watching at the time. And sometimes it would give you enough time to process entire emotions. And other times it just give you little flashes. But like watching the giraffe die was horrifying. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that was horrible. And then, you know, go back over and then you're watching images of war, which technically should be more horrifying, sort of visually distorted and it's kind of beautiful in like this weird neon way that I haven't seen things since like the 80s be like video beautiful. So, I mean, I really enjoyed it once I got into it. I just didn't know that I was entering a pod of like free expression. So for the longest time, I was trying to pick a narrative out of it. But that didn't stand think... in your way, did... it sounds like. Well, it's not. Which I is, mean, I is think... actually surprising. I think the film is, I mean, it's not catering to people who don't know what it is but it's accepting of that i think i think you reject this film this film's not going to reject you it, it gives you ways to get back in at the way mm. that it wants to engage with you uh a lot always it's it always renews its invitation yeah, and that's to you what, uh it just about every that's every one of the sequence. nice things about you know suddenly finding out that you don't realize what's happening is you kind of don't need to you're kind of on this new track and you could you rejoin it there so, I mean, I'd be interested if I watch it again, if I pick up more interesting things from the beginning of the film. But I feel like I had a really good experience with it, just meeting it on its terms and wrestling with it. And it seems weird to talk about a movie like that, but that's... I mean, if I'm fortunate enough to convince anybody else out there to watch this for the first time uh, and they want to thrash me for it, I would stress sort of what Dave was alluding to and just say that... Rewatchability is a huge factor of this film. I mean, I think naturally a film as obsessed with memory as this is uh, lends itself to being more rewatchable than, than most. But I think that, I mean, I, I say this as far as it applies to me, but I can say it with some certainty that this is, to me, the most rewatchable film I've ever seen. I mean, I've, I see it you know, a few times a year and it, it always grows along with me. But uh, sorry, Katie, what were you going to say? Well, I... I... Well, it was interesting what Dave said about trying to find a narrative and being lost in that. And I definitely had that experience, too, in the beginning. But I think it was less of a narrative as just trying to listen to what the narrator was telling me. Like like I was saying before, trying to find a thread. Like, you know, starts telling a story about a man, and I want to hear to the end of what they're telling me about the man. But then at some point, either because it moves on or because I just couldn't handle the thread because the images weren't matching what they were talking about, I would lose myself. And, David, you compared it to F for Fake, which I also thought about. But F for Fake is you got this voice of Orson Welles kind of spinning a puzzle for you. And it's kind of you're being invited into this trick and this, not a story, but this kind of world that he's explaining. And the narrative in this, the narrator in this does none of that. It's kind of a, you know, a talking guide. And eventually, like Dave, like Dave said, you can kind of need to almost block it out to be able to follow what's going on. And I had a harder time with that, I think, than Dave did. But I do, I'm glad it 
did what it was doing, but I don't know if it was as effective on me. If maybe if I known from the beginning, or even if I just been able to piece together kind of what I'm being told and why, and when I don't really need to listen to what I'm being told. It's. I mean, it's an interesting thing to to think about. I, I mean, David, I don't know if you'd agree that like trying to listen to the words or or digest the words may be less important than listening to the words. Um, I, I just thought a lot about, you know, I've been damned by Mike Ryan on movie phone for, um, stepping out of the tree of life and calling it a poem, a visual poem. <laughs> um, I'll never live that down. But, um, you know, I, I obviously thought about that when watching this movie, because here's a movie like that. I uh, found myself allowed to drift into and not necessarily feel the need to try and put the words and the pictures together, but kind of listen to it and take it in as a sensory experience. At least this that's the way I approach it this first time. Um, and I, I feel like I got a lot out of it, especially because within the first 10 minutes, there's a shot of Lucky Cat. Um, so. <laughs> well, Chris Marker is famously obsessed with cats and usually uses one as a representation of his own image. <laughs> that really, um, that really changed my life. Um, but I think, I mean, I think it would literally change my life. But this movie is, I mean, it's, it's. There's a part very early on, and this is the the sentence that ho- hovers over the whole film, where the narrator says that you know memory is not the opposite of forgetting, but it, rather it's lining. Which, I mean, essentially the, what this film is about is not is about how memory and Im- images have sort of become conflated with one another and how memory is not a static thing where you simply recall, like pulling a photo out of a stack of photos, uh, a, a flat image or something, but rather something alive that is constantly being shaped and, and formed and changed. And, and it sort of makes people the tuning forks of images. And, and you know, whenever someone chooses to access... Uh, an image they're essentially recreating it and i mean this goes this this idea goes back to the, the very origins of cinema and images to begin with and and i hate for all of the films that i sort of obsess over to be very sort of metacinematic but i think there's something that transcends just the, even the idea of images as we see them technologically in this film and it uses this great tool that's created by this fictitious Japanese musician in this film uh, where they process images through a synthesizer and then play the images live in this like weird acid washed um, sort of monochromatic uh, color scheme where, where he just can like play an instrument and the images respond accordingly where it just it, it speaks to memory much more than it does uh, the mechanisms by which we process it it's just, just memory in the abstract and I think that if, the, if this was the only movie ever made full stop it would still have, I think, a very powerful effect on, along those lines. But I think as far as, like, as far as the narrative is concerned, I mean, if you really want to boil it down, this is the story of, as, as it's narrated literally in the beginning, of somebody who has a memory from their life of three little girls in Iceland uh, and doesn't know where to put it. It doesn't know where to file it appropriately so that it can be accessible and have meaning and find the appropriate context. And so the film... Is sort of a, a search for the right cubby, the right slot for that key, uh, and you know, obviously, it's not like you know, extremely loud and incredibly close. Where he's finding <laughs> a, a literal, I if haven't even only, seen that film, but uh, but um, uh, you know, it's it's that, and and he says, you know, and I'd like to make a movie like this, and it's sort of his admission. He's involved. Chris Mark is involving himself. I'd like to make a movie like this where it opens with this image and then has a long black leader, and he includes that. And then they move from there. I mean, it's it's it's, but it's one of those films that I think 
reflects back on you sort of how much you're changing. And it's remarkable how it can do that with the same images that are immediately removed from the present day. I mean, I think that this movie is rather than looking dated when you're looking at images of 1983 Japan um, and the referencing, you know, military conflicts, which are ancient history. Uh, it actually, I think that the, the directness, the immediacy of those images and how they speak to us even today uh, actually increases their power because you're, you're struck by how much the, their effect transcends the sort of technological divide um, and, and just speak to something much deeper than that. But I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, just as far as I, uh, this is not only supposed to be like this, this, re, this film underlined for me, not only what the cinema was capable of, but why it was so important to me uh, just as, as a means of expression, as a way of, of understanding and expressing both the world and the people in it and how, you know, I mean, I think in the cinema just isn't sort of like a hobby or, or a, a way to spend one's time, but a, as important as languages. And I think you know, watching the cinema, to, watching Sans Soleil recently, uh, and you know, being back in film school now on a graduate level, I was thinking as a filmmaker, I, I was thinking that this film is really the ultimate testament as to why film and the ability to read images it needs to be as fundamental a part of our like academic educational system, you know, on the, on the elementary level as reading. Um, and math and all this stuff. I mean, I think this is just as vital and just as important. And I think it's impossible to process the modern world in any meaningful way without the ability to, to read images. And I think it is something that, that people need to be taught in some respects because I think this, this, this movie is so primal and, and basic and it, it hops around the world and everybody sees it the same way. But I think people like Chris Marker exist. Their art is to help people find the words and the, the connections. And you can watch this movie and you just feel your synapses firing and, and being connections being made across these chasms that you never thought would would have anything to do with one another or the two sides, you know, whatever, uh, run parallel to each other. And and I think that, you know, it's it's a really important film in that regard and uh, has definitely shaped everything I've done since, much like Mishima or Close Up or any of the other films that are along those same lines. Well, sign your children up for uh, David's elementary school film school. Also, some rudimentary <laughs> finance. Just, you know, they'll need it. <laughs> okay. Well, so, Dave, Dave, you can teach the finance class. Um, Dave, uh, David, thank you for, for Sans Soleil. We're going to have a music break before we move on to the final tribute. The final tribute is mine. I um, brought in a movie that I saw when I was 15, as we, we were all around that age, uh, 1999's American Beauty. Um, unlike, I think, everybody else on this podcast, I don't really plan to be a filmmaker and never really have. 
I kind of thought about it while in college and film school, but for the most part, I always wanted to write about movies. And this one kind of came right at the point where I realized that was something that you could do and that's something I might want to do. And at the time, I was kind of really into English, and I had a bunch of friends from a creative writing program, and we were really into, like, symbolism and, like, finding what colors mean. And, you know, someone mentions a green light at the end of the dock, and what does that mean, to use, like, the most obvious example. And then we saw American Beauty, which at the time, you know, it was the big uh, Oscar frontrunner. It was this huge deal. It was a big hit. Um, And it was kind of this opportune moment to look at it and kind of find a movie that said all of those things that we had been seeing in literature. And it wasn't, I don't think I had ever thought about what a movie could be about beyond what the story was. If, if, If you think of like what a movie is trying to tell you. I had always looked at it as like, okay, well, it's about, it's about, you know, Star Wars. It's about a boat sinking. It's, you know, it's about what the plot is. But I think this is the first time I'd looked at something and said, what am I getting from this that isn't just the story? And looking, so I watched it today uh, for the first time, I think in 10 years, probably since I started college, kind of really fully expecting to go back on a lot of the things that I thought about it, to kind of think it was more shallow and to, you know, all of the color symbolism I found in it to be totally off base, which for a lot of it, it was. But there is a lot of that in there. It kind of does make for this good introduction to someone who's only used to analyzing literature to look at a movie and kind of figuring out what it's trying to say. It's kind of it's got this famously great cinematography from Conrad Hall and the uh, the mise en scène, which is not a term I knew about when I was fifteen. It does a lot with color that is it's there, and I don't. I think I feel less confident about what it means now. I mean, it's famously got all this use of rose petals, both in the house and in these fantasy sequences. And uh, Annette Bening's character wears a lot of red, and I think I. I I bought that all into meaning a lot of things that it didn't really mean at the time. I kind of learned hard in college when I wrote a paper that got a very bad grade that a a film has to set up its own reasons for what color means. You you can't just look at someone wearing a white hat and saying, yes, that means he's good. At least not unless you're looking at an old Western. Or watching the adjustment bureau. Well, no, they had had black hats. But that would still fit in with, never mind. (laughs) <laughs> the adjustment bureau does fit into my theory of all it has thomas newman's score um but i did i did think that it held up and i do feel more proud of my 15 year old self for digging into this than i thought i would and i was i was relieved by that and i'm also I'm, i value this movie on a, on a nostalgic level that i don't think a lot of people do i think it's remembered as this kind of trumped up you know, it's this, uh, this in, you know, it's like an indie movie, like a 90s indie movie about dysfunctional families, but with this huge gloss over it. It's, you know, shot beautifully. The performances get kind of big. I think the uh, the stuff with Chris Cooper's family is terrible, like really bad. And in, in a way that I couldn't really recognize at the time. Um, but a lot of it holds up. And I felt um, I felt really good about that. And I don't like I don't I was expecting you guys to all be on the anti-American. Wait, why is the Chris Cooper family backlash. stuff so bad? To you. It's Just really no. It's, with, it's, with him it's, and Haiti. Why, why? It's really it's it's really broad. That character isn't really a character. He's kind of this conception of like what a typical homophobic military man would be like. He introduces himself twice as Frank Fitz or Colonel Frank Fitz, U.S. Marine Corps. But like, it's not if, striving like, for realism. Anyone who's been in the military would introduce themselves. And you've got Allison Janney's character, who's kind of this shell shocked, you know, woman who's obviously been living in this abusive household for a long time. And it you you look at the um. Annette Benning, Kevin Spacey family, and they're kind of a parody of late 90s suburban wealth, but you get depth in all of them. And I think the the house next door, Chris Cooper, Allison Janney, and then uh, Wes Bentley, <laughs> whose career just took off yep. from there. Um, Ghost Rider. Is he? He's not in Ghost. He's a Ghost Rider? 
Wasn't he in Ghost Rider 1? Oh, I don't know. Yes, I was. thought you were talking about Ghost Rider 2. Well, yeah, I did. he's in the Hunger Games, so maybe we shouldn't make fun of him. Um, but they just, they felt like a, they felt more convenient as uh, foils and as kind of symbols of what this movie But like, isn't that what the movie's against. kind of striving for? It's almost like now you think that it should be committed to realism when it really isn't that. No, I don't think it's committed to realism, but I think it's, it, it takes heightened versions of characters and does things with them and makes them interesting and kind of says things about them. And I feel like those are all used as... Kind of like, here's what 50s Americana has given us and doesn't really dig into it any deeper. But I feel that. like that's why American Beauty has value. Like, I, I, I think it's such heightened realism. In, I mean, obviously, there's a connection to Six Feet Under with Alan Ball, who wrote the script. Um, yeah. I think it gets away with some of that. And that's why I find it to be an interesting film, because there are a few examples of that in modern day, I think, that play with theatrics and play with... Um, loose characterization and heightened reality and, and that sort of thing to kind of send its messages. And I, it can be blunt at times, but it's certainly well-crafted. And um, because Sam Mendes is a man of the theater, I think it's handled quite well and delicately um, in, in terms of doing this broad stuff at times. I, I don't know. I, that, that stuff really works for me in the movie. I, I would yeah. never uh, kind of undermine it later to think that it should have been more realistic or – um, that all of the side characters should be better defined. I think that kind of pelting Kevin Spacey's character with these really bold characterizations is is part of the movie. I think the bold characterizations is what works, but I think they are less bold. And they, I think they're so close to reality, like it's so close to something that could be a realistic family home that it then feels unfair. Sorry, David, it's you were going to talk. Like, well, I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm sort of making this up as I go along as tends to happen on this show but i think that just thinking about it in the context of the here and now it feels to me a lot like the artist is to singing in the rain this is to the films of douglas sirk i mean it's uh no way it's the the, uh, the film uh, the douglas sirk comparison is uh oh shit what is that movie far the, from heaven yeah far from heaven no, far well, from, no but course, far from but heaven far is from just heaven a, is a tribute is, is, exactly i mean far from heaven is much more i mean the artist of course i mean i think as far as the analogy goes patches is is not wrong uh, in that, in that, you know, the, the artist is a direct tribute to Singing in the Rain, and, and American Beauty is not necessarily a direct tribute to the films of Douglas Sirk. But as far as what they strive for, um, I mean, I think that American Beauty is. I experienced it, I think, almost identically to the way Katie did. I saw it when I was fifteen in theaters, and it had, you know, it was this big indie release, and I felt brave and, and bold to see it and, and it's such a remarkably polished film uh, and the cinematography is beautiful and, and the score is so perfect for for ring like you know ringing these emotions out of it that score and is still is so, amazing like yeah, amazing I mean, and thomas newman would copy it in nine dozen films he from, sure like, did <laughs> Uh, and, but and other performances are so attuned to this one idea, and it's so facile and superior and obvious that it, it can't help but be grating, I think, when you just are a little bit removed from it, maybe a little bit older, uh, and a little bit you know more familiar with cinema as a whole, once this movie is sort of served as a gateway. Uh, I mean, it, it definitely gets a little bit of a bad rap these days, and I think a lot of that is earned but uh, and, and it's all really a result of the characterizations but it's it's so damningly effective i mean like the beats just work they may work in spite of themselves they may work in spite of what's best for you and, and how you know any like any sort of you know really substantial portraits of anything meaningful i mean it ultimately boils down to a story of 
love love these people and like life is I don't know. It's just like very it's very it's not a, a particularly meaningful movie, but it, it it works on a purely sentimental level that I think is really difficult to deny. And it's it's pure it's like a as far as pure cinema, if we're talking about that, going back to Patch's comment on the Blues Brothers, I mean I think that you know, pure cinema is sort of a, a, a neologism, but I think that as far as you're talking about American Beauty and why it works for me, it's purely cinematic, the reasons why. Uh, yeah. And nothing, nothing beyond that. I would also argue in favor of the, um, not just the sentimentality, but the humor I think holds up really well. It's really funny. And the performances remain really funny. And I think its best moments are when it's kind of got those punches of dark humor. Mina Suvari is really funny in this movie, which I did not expect to still see in uh, This is the only memorable and, Mina Suvari anything. that I, I mean, America, she was in American Pie, but no one's Excuse gonna... me, Loser? Yeah, uh, loser's a classic. <laughs> I'm not. Dan Aykroyd second finest Jason role. Jason Biggs still has dibs on her eggs. And yes, that is Dan Aykroyd's second finest role. <laughs> wow. Under the Blues Brothers, of course. Dave, Dave of course. did you have more thoughts on the movie? Well, I was going to say that really, I think, gets some great performances out of actors that I like. And, um, I mean, we've already kind of covered the odd decisions it makes. As somebody who's stayed on board with Alan Ball kind of amazingly since then, it was fun for me to kind of go back and revisit him sort of finding the six feet under kernels and then almost touching true blood kernels, but not quite being ready to go there yet. And I think if, you know, there have been different drafts of this script that I've read throughout time being interested in scripts where he, where he flies, flies <laughs> where they uh, kill the kids, kill him at the end instead of Chris Cooper's uh, uh, character. But I think it's uh, interesting that, Sam Mendes and Alan B- managed to help Alan Ball into his box for this one. And he's just like, we're just going to pull this one off and we're going to focus <laughs> on pulling off these character beats because they're really cool. And Alan Ball's like, all right. And sort of everybody goes out and performs to get to those character beats. And I think it's perfectly serviceable. I, I mean, I do agree with Katie that the Chris Cooper family is a little broad now, but I'm not going to see myself getting mad at American Beauty like I'm still mad at Crash for oversimplifying race relations <laughs> for, to get an Oscar. Yeah, and, and I, w- I was thinking about that too, the idea of, just thinking of where we were in terms of gay rights and where, you know, the idea of having two gay neighbors, you know, who the polished guys who go jogging and the idea of having someone who would, you know, just mutter under their breath about fags. It doesn't seem that realistic anymore. But uh, 13 years ago is a long time ago. Like, it, it really was different back then, and it is worth remembering that, especially for why, you know, it mattered to me. I, you know, I'm living in South Carolina. Like, I, I had gay friends then, but it felt completely revolutionary and crazy. And, you know, like, I was living on the edge of everything, you know, risque. So it, it, it resonated at the time, and I feel like it wasn't just for sheltered South Carolina teenagers like me who that worked for. And that's American Beauty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I had one other thing to say about American Beauty, but um, I'm glad I'm glad that it that it existed at the time in my life that it did, and I'm glad that it does hold up pretty well. I feel like there there could be teenagers who could watch it now and maybe have the same experience, even though I think it does. It's very much a product of the '90s. You think about you know the mm-hmm. idea of looking into suburban malaise, and obviously it's it was a pre twenty eleven. It's a pre two thousand eleven. The 2001 film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, both literally and and figuratively. I was thinking about the same thing. Like, the idea of this giant house and the idea of the problems of being too settled and too comfortable. Like, those are things that 
just didn't exist in movies made in the last decade. And in that way, it's kind of a it's a good relic of its time, but it also still feels kind of fresh in its own way, too. I think that this movie has I mean, I, I, as I, again, to reiterate, I completely understand and, and sympathize with why Katie connected with this movie the way she did when she was 15 or 16. Katie's older than me. I just want to put that out there. So <laughs> well, however old she was, I was one year younger. That's true. Uh, I, I, was, I was 18 um, years older than you, for yeah. sure. Um, and, uh, and I was three. But I do think <laughs> that this that this film has outgrown, besides like being a primer on how to synthesize all the disparate elements of film to like get very exact emotions out of your audience i think this movie has has really outgrown its purpose and its its need to exist beyond being a gateway to other films but i think for me for now for all of us on this podcast um and for many of you listening i think that it's done its job and there's really no need for it anymore interesting Uh, no i totally disagree with that I I would I would disagree. I think I got a lot out of rewatching it today that I'm glad. For. I mean, it's not Little Miss Sunshine where you could like just look at somebody's note card movie play out on screen, you know. Like it, for as simplistic and as you know ham-handed it is occasionally, it does attempt to do things. It's just none of its characters exist anymore. It's not a <laughs> it is not a cinematic fart because none of its characters are are you know. No, I think They're they were real people. Why does it, I mean, they were real people. They're just not anymore. I mean, teenagers don't sit around and film bags anymore because they have YouTube. But they say they always say in film school they talk about you know this word. It makes me cringe every time when they're like you know this decision wasn't honest and it didn't feel honest. And I'm always that guy that's like fuck you. The movies don't need to be honest. They just need to be interesting. <laughs> and and this is the movie that I watch and think okay. Like there, there's something so it's it's such a sham. Everything is so dishonest about this film that I that it. I'll, I'll disagree with that and just say that I think we're kind of confusing honesty with with a stri- striving for realism. Like I and Katie, you mentioned before that the like fags line didn't sound realistic or didn't really click with you because it, I I don't know. I just it seems I think there's a lot to get out of the film, and but it's not a film to to dwell on whether it's it's. Um, reality or not you're you're not going here for true drama you're going here for heightened drama and i think but it's there's... not about what well, i'm sorry i was gonna say it was, it's not about when i say honesty i don't mean you know that it's like verity documentary reality which is something we've talked on the podcast about you know at length and i would be the first to tell you it doesn't exist i just think it's a sort of sort of emotional honesty it's like, sure okay that is a recognizable human emotion i think that the movie is is clouded by its writerly bullshit uh, I'd, but... I'd, I'd, I'd put myself somewhere in between you guys. I think there are moments of honesty, but I, I, do, I think one of the flaws of the movie is that it gets kind of wrapped up in these characters as representative of an idea of what, you know, of suburbia or, or something like that. It is. And that, you know, that maybe that's Sam Mendes's, uh, or Alan, Sam Mendes' theatrical background and Alan Ball's newness as a writer uh, coming through. Let me but just I... tell you, if Sam Mendes fucks up the next Bond movie, I'm going to come back for this in a big way. <laughs> We're just going to have to talk about this in doubly, the next quarter quell. Doubly pissed. Man, that Bond movie might be out by the next quarter quell. Um, I think that does it for American Beauty. Are we going to have a music break before? I think this is the end, before, like, my friend. I think this is the end. Wow. Um, so that does it for the quarter quell. Now it's time for dessert. Dave, now what was we're going to question. Do it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, my lightning round question was, uh, <clears throat> in honor of the title of Ghost Rider 2 Spirit of Vengeance, what's your favorite on-screen moment of sweet, sweet revenge? Who's first? 
I don't think any of us picked one. I have picked one. I am gonna. Uh, you, I don't know if I think have. this is my favorite, but um, I'm gonna go with at Milguelianaranya. That is totally wrong, but you know who I'm talking about. I'm gonna go with uh, Daniel Plainview Sunday. I drink your milkshake. Ooh, that there is will good. be blood. <laughs> um, I am going to choose our friend Mr. Bowers, who chose the warden discovering he's been screwed in Shawshank Redemption. The zoom in on the Bible quote is priceless, and that is uh, that's a pretty great moment in a movie that I do enjoy. Uh, I mean, I I wanted to be a little bit less obvious than this, but it's just so good. So many people went with Old Boy. Uh, that it's, I mean, that movie. You yourself good. almost went with Old Boy. Yeah, you yeah, almost went uh, not to pull the curtain back uh, here, but no. I mean, do I you think, have a do you have a choice moment in Old Boy? Well, I'll go with I'll go with the person who did because not everyone was so specific. But Christy Puchko said, uh, actually, she went with Lady Vengeance. I was just sort of following the ball <laughs> in my head. Uh, so she didn't go with Old Boy at all. She said when the grandmother in Lady Vengeance uses her scissors. But I know that I mean the scene. Anyone who's seen Lady Vengeance knows exactly the scene to which christy is referring and you know what i think ultimately as far as revenge goes that's when, when old boy gets into the specifics of its revenge i think that's where it rather than just being like the arc of it it's where it drops the ball a little bit but it's hallway exactly hammer it, david come on but no but that's exactly why lady vengeance is so good because it's the it's the vengeance scene like the, <laughs> really the, the centerpiece of it that that delivers in that film and so i'll go with christy on that one lady vengeance I'm going to go with Katie Isms, who said the five-point palm exploding heart technique in Kill Bill Volume 2 is up there. And it is also up there for me, even though I think a lot of it is score. But if the whole bloody affair ever comes together, I think the plot might be able to back up that cathartic moment. Don't write off score. That is, that, that's fine. I'm just saying I think a lot of it is score. And that movie, that, that score is awesome at that point when he falls to his <laughs> knees. Anywho. I, I want to point out how much... Uh, Tarantino made it onto these suggestions. There were a couple of Inglorious Bastards. There was a Pulp Fiction. There was a couple of Kill Bills. Um, he's he's good at the revenge, and I guess. It looks like I, I would guess I have not subjected myself to the Django scripts because why would I do I that? I believe that's the if, whole point uh, but, of Django. He's but taking yeah, revenge. I'm thinking that there's going to be probably a few new moments. Wow! So that's uh, three in a row for uh, Tarantino that are entirely. By I mean, revenge. I'm also yeah, yeah. vaguely. That's that. like being like every Coen Brothers movie is about a suitcase full of money. No, but I mean, literally, I think every Tarantino film is actually about revenge. I mean, Inglorious <laughs> Bastards, Kill Bill, and Django and Chain are specifically proof. about revenge. Death, Death proof. proof is yeah. filmed right before Inglorious Bastards. There's also was a, a weird very, amount very of, much uh, about revenge. Um, uh, 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 dragon tattoo. Yeah, or a couple Fresh dragon tattoos. Mo- yeah, I guess that's in people's minds. Fresh on Although the brain. No one saw it. So. And one account of Monte Cristo. No that is not it, true. It, yeah, cro- that's it, not true it crossed a hundred million dollars. Yeah, that's that's not for nothing. Just, just your anti-dragon how tattoo much did it bias. Make? Like it's made more than a hundred million at this point. Oh. Yeah, and that's just domestically. I mean, internationally, it made a killing. They're they're they certainly made enough to justify. It made a killing. Ah. I'm I'm gonna look this up right. I'm gonna delay the end of the show so I can look up. how Can I talk about something while you delay the end of the show? No, no, no. Wait, Hey guys, do it. Um, you guys should tune in next week because we're going to exclusively debut music from the new last Airbender series that will air on Nickelodeon soon. The Legend of Korra. Yes. It's going to be it's a good one. Plus an interview. I was, I'm, go Patches. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. I just stole your thunder. Go. 
um, Mr. Patch has also conducted a pretty awesome interview with myself and the track team, and uh, they let us debut some tracks, and we talk about scoring uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. It is on Netflix. Watch instantly right now. Go check out the original series if you haven't. Even just a little bit of it to check out the score and the animation style, because it's awesome. So excited. And next week, we've also scored an exclusive interview with video artist Chris Marker, who is going to be... Not. No, no, In we your haven't. dreams. Uh, uh, that's a David's version I of guess, the podcast. I guess we'll have to stick with... Uh, Don't let David's James joke uh, dissuade you. We really do have an exclusive stuff that we're talking about. <laughs> it's true. Um, also, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has made $211 million worldwide, including $100 million domestic. And that's our show. Everybody tell the people who you are. Uh, I'm Matt Patches. I'm the movies editor of Hollywood.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Patches, M-I-S-T-E-R Patches. Hey, it's me, Dave with the 7. I write at Latino-Review.com, and I tweet things on Twitter at Twitter.com backslash DA7E. I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me at Movies.com, where I write the Criterion Corner column, uh, as well as Criterion Corner the tumblr what's the address i don't know criteriancorner.tumblr.com that's uh i spent a lot of my time and also at box office magazine where i am a reviewer i review things for review. and i'm katie rich i work here at cinema blend and you can follow me on twitter at katie rich and we will be back next week and we'll see you then 50 episodes guys you never keep